Heavenly Father, you are holy, holy, holy. And in preparation for the study today about our sinfulness, I'm just reminded of the passage in Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Lord, we are sinners. We are helpless and hopeless apart from you. And I pray this morning that your spirit would be actively working in the hearts this morning. We need your truth. We need to know it. We need to believe it. And we need to dependently cry out to you for mercy. And I pray this morning that you would help us to see and believe so that we might better serve you, so we might better rejoice, have hearts of gratitude and thankfulness for your great glory. We love you, Lord, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we continued with sort of an overview of the doctrine of salvation. And last week we talked about a couple questions. We talked about what is salvation. We went through a definition, understanding that salvation really, in a word we could say, would be deliverance. Um, And then we also talked about the problem that um, is involved in the story and the narrative of salvation. We talked about the plan of salvation. We even talked about the when the tenses that scripture talk about in salvation. And then we moved on to how salvation happens, and we saw that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And today, we're going to continue, and we're going to have a short little history lesson um, on TULIP. So we're going to talk about where these doctrines of grace come from and why that's important. And we're also going to talk about the first acronym, the first point or letter in the acronym TULIP, and we're going to talk about total depravity this morning. So first, let's talk about some of the characters of the Protestant Reformation. It started in the 1500s, and a key figure in the Reformation was Martin Luther. He was a German professor of theology, a priest, an author, a composer, an Augustinian monk, and he had some issues with the Catholic Church at the time, particularly the view on indulgences. And as many of us know, um, he had written down 95 of these issues and nailed them to the church door um, in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517. So if you think about uh, John Calvin in relation to that, Calvin was about eight years old when Luther was nailing that to the door. So not quite... um, total contemporaries, although they did overlap some. And John Calvin was actually a French theologian. He was a pastor and a reformer um, who did pastoral ministry in Geneva, Switzerland. So in the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin is is well known uh, for his influential writings. In particular, he wrote The Institutes of Christian Religion, and that was published in 1536. So after this had gotten started, he had gone through studying Scripture with a high view of Scripture, saying Scripture's the authority, that it's all about God's glory, and wanted to systematize, which just means he goes through and says, Scripture touches everything in our lives. So what does that mean? And he wrote that down um, in 1536. So John Calvin lived until 1564, which means the other figure that we're going to be discussing today is Jacobus Arminius, who was actually a Dutch theologian. So these guys are all over Europe. Uh, They're not necessarily next door and talking theology all day long, but they're kind of spread out as this um, love for God's word and God's truth was was growing and spreading. And during the Protestant Reformation, his views became the basis for what's known as Arminianism. And he was born in 1560. So again, he was four-year-old, 
four years old when John Calvin passed away. So they're kind of like layered in after each other. And uh, what we see is that Jacobus Arminius had some um, disagreements with Reformed theology as it had been systematized and printed and consensusly agreed upon um, in the Protestant Reformation. So what we know to be the Synod of Dort was an event where um, in, uh, excuse me, in uh, the, the Dutch Reformed Church, they got together, and it was actually an international event. So there was a lot of theologians, um, a lot of Bible scholars, a lot of pastors all come together, over 100 of them, and several of them internationally came to discuss the issues that weren't even presented by Jacobus Arminius himself, but his students. His students that were under his teaching and his writings compiled some um, things that they disagreed with in um, the systematic Reformed theology. And they came up with five particular disagreements. And so this controversy that came together uh, wasn't until um, 1618. So they met from November to May to talk about the Bible. Six months of talking about the Bible, and they met over 150 times. And they, they mulled over Scripture to say, hey, if you disagree with these points, we want to make sure that we're being biblical. The Bible is the authority, so we want to submit to Scripture and uphold Scripture. And in all five points, the result of this meeting, this council, was that they rejected all five points of Arminianism, and they said, we're holding to what we've already said is true, what we've already seen in Scripture, that it's about God's glory and it's by His grace. So the rejection, of course, was specific, though. They didn't want to just blanket statement and dismiss it. They wanted to address all five points. And so the teaching of Calvinism, which is known as the doctrines of grace or the acronym of TULIP, was actually a response to five objections. It wasn't originally put together just to try to synthesize and make it really easy for us to teach, but rather it was a response to um, unbiblical views at the time. So today we're going to talk about that first objection. The first objection that was, uh, one of the objections that was raised was about the condition of man. What is man's condition specifically after the fall? Can we respond to God or not? And to compare these views, I wanted to kind of lay them up side by side. First, um, in talking about the spiritual state of mankind after the fall, the Arminian objection could be summarized with four points. The Arminian view is that man has a free will that man is able to respond to God on their own, that grace is helpful, and that uh, faith is a work of man. And we see some summary statements I wanted to make um, about these views. So just listen through uh, the view of Arminianism. Human nature was seriously affected by the fall, but man is not left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but... He does so in such a manner as not to interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will, and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in regard to spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power either to cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or to resist God's grace and perish. A lost sinner needs the Spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the Spirit before he can believe, for faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. Now, in opposition to that, the response to this view of man's condition was listed out as such. We could summarize it as total depravity, total inability, Effective grace, 
and the gift of faith. Listen to these summary statements as well in regards to a Calvinist perspective or the Reformed view at the time that rejected this one point in regards to man's condition. Because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Man will not and cannot choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. It takes more than the Spirit's mere assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration, by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. Total depravity, specifically, though, often gets misunderstood. The term total depravity in our minds often means that everybody is as bad as they possibly could be apart from Christ. But that would be actually called utter depravity. Total depravity rather speaks to the totality of its impact on every part of man. So this doctrine teaches that every part of man is corrupted by sin and in rebellion against God. And the goal of our study this morning um, is not just to summarize the history of this event, but we want to look at Scripture. We want to be the same way. We want to gather together to say, what does God's word say on the subject? And who is right and who is wrong? Because if these are just man's opinions, that will not help us. That will not change us. But God's word, through God's spirit, helps us to conform to the image of Christ. And that's what we need this morning. So our goal is to hear, believe, and submit to God's word. This morning we're going to be looking at several passages of scripture regarding the consequences of sin, the impact of sin, and the conclusive condition of sinners. First, the consequences of sin. We see in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, scripture reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We see Adam's disobedience brought spiritual death upon himself and the human race. And we see Paul explaining this in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, referring to Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Psalm 51.5 speaks of our sinfulness, even from infancy. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this repetition of our deadness, our inability, and the corruptness of our nature and desire. We see Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, speaking to believers about how their condition was before Christ. And it says, And this was the way in which you once walked, following the chorus of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that was now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, he says, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature, he says, children, excuse me, children of wrath. And he even comments, 
like the rest of mankind. He's not leaving the door open for any sort of island of righteousness in the heart of man. But let's take time to look through each of these. As we looked at even um, the humanity of Christ in our study, that he's 100% God, 100% man. In that study, in regards to Christ's humanity, we talked about the mind. We talked about the heart, and we talked about the will, and reading through Scripture to see is there evidence of a human nature. And we want to do the same in regards to this sin of study. Do we see that Scripture talks about the mind? What is a state of a sinner's mind? What is the state of a sinner's heart? What is the state of a sinner's will? So let's first look at the impact of sin on the human mind. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, verses 7 through 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see this in Scripture constantly, this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And if we are in the flesh, in our sins, there is no ability in us, in the mind, to understand and receive the truths of God on our own. Ephesians four seventeen through 18 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk As the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. Paul also writes to Titus, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are are defiled. Over and over again, we see in Scripture that the man of mind is corrupted by sin. It is depraved. What do we see about the heart, though? What about man's heart? What does Scripture say? In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, Scripture says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Jeremiah 17, 9, a verse we're very familiar with. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or the ESV says desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's even a lack of understanding of the depravity of our heart. So it's kind of hitting both sides of, of, of that. Mark 7, verses 20 through uh, 23, actually, speaks to this as well. It says, And he, being Jesus, said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Scripture clearly testifies that the heart of man is corrupt due to sin. So we've got the mind covered, that's corrupted. We've got the heart, and that's corrupted. What about man's will? What about our will? Scripture clearly teaches that our will is in bondage to sin. We're enslaved to sin. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin 
is a slave to sin. And then later in that same chapter in verse 44, you are the father of the devil. Oh, sorry. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. I think one thing that's important to understand about the will is that the will is something that acts upon desire. Our will is always inclined with what we desire to do. And so if our thoughts are corrupted, if our heart, our desires are corrupted, the will is acting on those desires. So if all of our desires are evil and wicked before the Lord, our actions are going to show the same. We see in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 22, Paul writes, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And he contrasts it. He says, if you were free in regards to righteousness, there was none of it. But you were a slave to sin instead. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin... And have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. It's important for us to understand that salvation is freedom from sin, which means we were enslaved to sin, including our wills. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. He says, Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We also see in John chapter 1, in the prologue, verses 12 through 13, speaking of salvation, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, speaking of Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave it. Who were born, how did this happen? Not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So how did it happen? But of God. God is the one who accomplishes salvation. He owns it and he does it. Sin is not merely a behavior. It's actually described in scripture as a state of being. It's not just what we do, but it's who we are. Since the fall of our human nature has been infected with sin, this disease is is something that is not merely outside of us, but it's something that's already inside the gates, as is often said. It's corrupted every part of us. And I think it's important for us this morning, a lot of us as we think through this, we can think of examples even outside of us. I think we think about what's going on in the world and we think about, man, yes, I can see this going on, but... We ought not to fall prey this morning to the idea that sin is out there. Sin is in here. It's in you. We often think higher of ourselves, even as believers, than we should. And we ought to be careful to consider this morning our sinfulness before a holy God. We think of large-scale sins like sexual sins or adultery or stuff like that as like, that's the real big deal, but... My little stuff that happens is is something that's not a big deal. But think about for a minute, when you get furious and angry because you're on hold for 30 minutes, or you get cut off in traffic and you have some road rage 
We're quick to blame shift, aren't we? We go right back to the garden. We like to say phrases like, if they had not, fill in the blank. They should have just this, and then I would have. That's the same view that says sin is out there. It's not in here. It's not my fault that I responded this way. We need to consider this morning that like a sponge being squeezed, we reveal what is on the inside. That is our sinful depravity before a holy God. That's our condition because of the fall. So we've seen this morning the consequences of sin, excuse me, and even the impact of sin on man's nature. But is it this way for everyone? Is it, is it really all of mankind? Yes. Yes, it is. There's this idea in Scripture of universal bondage. We've seen it in some verses already this morning, but let's look at some more. Second Chronicles chapter 6 says, For there is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And in the book of Romans, the first two chapters, Paul is making a case for the sinfulness of all of mankind. Chapter 1, he talks about the sinfulness of the Gentiles. And chapter 2, he talks about the sinfulness of the Jews. And then in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, he makes it crystal clear who he's talking about and who has this sinful, corrupt nature. He starts in verse 9, he says, What then? Are the Jews any better off? He says, No, not at all. For we have already charged, I've already talked about this in the first two chapters, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The testimony of Scripture is that because Adam represented all of mankind, he's the federal head, we have all fallen into sin. We have a sin nature, and we also desire to sin. We are also sinners. Sin corrupts all parts of man and all of mankind. One way to say it, we could say that sin impacts all of us, and sin impacts all of us, right? We could repeat that phrase. And as a summary statement, I think that's important for us to grasp. That's what total depravity is talking about. It's all of me, and corporately, universally, it's all of us. Everyone, apart from Christ, is in that state. But is there, as we referenced earlier, I heard R.C. Sproul say, is there this sort of island of goodness left in man's being? Is there any sort of light or glimmer of hope that says, yes, we can respond to God of our own. We don't need to be born again before we can respond in faith. Is there any ability in us to turn from our sinful ways to God? That's where we would talk about the ability of man. Are we capable in our own, in the flesh? Or are we unable? Are we not capable? John six forty four. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him seems like God has to do action upon man first. We can't do it on our own. Later in that same chapter, it says that Jesus continued and repeated himself by saying, 
This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Same idea of a gift. God has to gift it first. Matthew seven sixteen through 18 reads, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. It seems the idea here that's being presented is if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, how can we then bear good fruit of faith in Jesus Christ? Jeremiah writes in chapter 13, a rhetorical question that's simply answered by no and, and parallels that statement. He says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Is there anything in man that they can do on their own? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil, he says. Clearly making the point, no, you can't make yourself good. There's nothing in you of your flesh that is good that you can respond in faith to Jesus Christ on your own. If we could fix our own sin, it would be just as plausible of us to do our own heart surgery. For us to rip out our own heart and to put a new one in would be the same result of us saying, well, I'm dead, but I'm going to do something that requires physical action. It's not possible, at least according to the testimony of Scripture. Now, having read through these verses, we may still have some specific clarifying questions that we should think through together. I think that's important for us. So let's talk about some of these questions. There's questions that would come up from man's perspective. From our perspective, looking up how can, can some of these things uh, work in regards to reconciling the truths we see in Scripture. And also from God's perspective, we can think from God's perspective looking down, we might have some questions. So first, let's think through man's perspective. Question number one, can I, according to these passages, please God on my own? First, I want to clarify, there is relative good that man can do. Relative meaning in, in relation to a horizontal relationship. We, as people who can see good and evil, can say, that was good of you to give someone a $100 bill. That was kind. But the question here is not the depravity horizontally. It's in view of God. Is there anything apart from Christ that I can do as an action that has motives that are solo, that are singular in this focus, that I'm doing something to glorify God. That's what pleases him. And apart from Christ, I can't have the right motivations for anything I'm doing. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 17. God evaluates the motives with which we do our actions. Scripture also says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So as an as a unbeliever before Christ, not having faith in Christ, how is it possible then that we could please God? It's not possible. Isaiah 64, 6 mentions that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even the good actions we do are unrighteous before a holy God. One um, author illustrated it in this way. He said it's like we were born and given gifts and trained to be warriors under a king. And then in our rebellion against him, we use those gifts to fight against him. And we say, 
well, I'm fighting next to my fellow enemy soldiers. You know, am I not doing good to protect them? It's like, well, you're using the gifts God's given you for evil. Even if it looks like from your perspective that you're doing something helpful. You're using them against God, not for God and for his glory. Before faith in Christ, nothing we think, do, or say is pleasing to God. And that's how we need to think about total depravity. It's not a horizontal perspective. It's a vertical one. How does God evaluate mankind and what they do? Question number two. So the answer is no, in case you didn't catch that. Question number two from man's perspective. Can I repent and believe on my own? What about, not, uh, okay, I, granted we can't please God on our own, but what about this turning point? This is the pivot point where I become, go from being unbelieving to believing. What about that moment? What's happening there? We would see that scripture says we are dead in our sin and we must be made alive. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. And there's this idea that he says, am I not already born in the kingdom because I'm an Israelite? And he contrasts and he says, the kingdom of God has to be born in you. You don't get born into the kingdom. It needs to be born in you. And it's a work of the spirit. This idea of regeneration, of new birth, you must be born again. And what we see in scripture is that regeneration precedes faith. If faith preceded regeneration, then again, we're in that camp again where we have to have some little island in our hearts that says we're good enough to respond in faith to God, but we're not. Every part of us is depraved and we are unable to respond to God. We must be born again so that we can have faith in Christ. And to to explain an analogy for this, um, when we say before, we're not speaking temporally. So not in regards to sequence of time in the way we think, but rather we would say in regards to causality, in regards to cause and effect. This is one event that's happening, but in regards to cause and effect, we have to say one comes before the other. And a good well, word picture that I read from um, John MacArthur's systematic and Mayhew's systematic theology was this idea of blindness. And scripture talks about our sin in this way as well. That's why I think it's a beautiful picture. We are blind to God. And if the light is shining in on us of the truth of faith in Christ to bring us life, and we are blind, we can't see it. God must remove our blindness. And as soon as that barrier is removed, faith enters into our eyes as light. So from a cause standpoint, there's a barrier It must be removed so that we can receive the gift of faith and trust in Christ. So from a cause standpoint, regeneration must precede faith. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. The answer is no. None. No one can say that. Job 14 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? There is not one. It's important for us to understand that even repentance and faith, repenting and believing in Jesus Christ for salvation, is a gift of God. It's not man's work. So, no, on my own, in my flesh, I cannot repent and believe. So what about from God's perspective, some questions? One would be, why does God restrain or permit in Scripture? And one objection comes up in this category because they want to say, well, man has a will. You can see it because God's doing something against it, so obviously man has a will. And what's ironic about the question is they have to borrow from our perspective to even ask it. Um, They say that man 
Man's will is not submitted or under the authority of God's sovereignty. So already their question's debunked because they think that God does not overrule or is not sovereign over the human will. So every one of those passages that they're asking questions to you about doesn't fit in their worldview, doesn't fit in the context of how they view. So it's, it's scripture that they have to actually pass over, but they try to put it in our camp and say, what about this? And what we, what's clearly taught in Scripture is that man is depraved and in our sinfulness. And actually, when he gives people over to their sin, it's in judgment to them to show this is where you go apart from my common grace in your life. And then when he restrains something, think of the incidents in Genesis where Abraham says, hey, Sarah's just my sister. And God restrains people from marrying off the woman he's chosen for his redemptive plan. He's restraining sin from happening because of his will, his redemptive promises and plan to be accomplished. God is not um, sitting on the sidelines saying, I hope man does the right thing. If not, I'll have to counter move. He's sovereign over it and he accomplishes his will. And so we need to understand when questions like that are asked, it doesn't really fit in their frame. Uh, But in our frame, it does fit because God is sovereign even over the human will. The human will is not um, a self-determining will that is totally free of any inhibitions or, or external influence. But God's will is self-determining. He decides what happens. And that's why we see those passages in Scripture. But we also need to stand in emphasizing God's sovereignty that Scripture also teaches that man is responsible. Man is responsible for their choices. Just a couple of verses, Matthew twelve thirty six says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Romans fourteen twelve. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And they, they'd say that this is a contradiction to say God is sovereign over man's will and man's, man's um, they want to say that man's will is free and so God can't be sovereign over it. But what we see in scripture is that man is responsible. They are responsible and they make real choices. But God is not submitted to or on the sideline hoping that they make the right ones. That's not what we see in scripture. But we do see man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Fourth question from God's perspective, and this is a good question. It's important that it's, it's an appropriate question to ask, to think about. How can God judge those who are unable to do good? That's a real question that we, we need to think about. How, um, if, if our sin is basic to our nature, such that we can do nothing but sin, how can God judge us for sinning? In our framework, thinking about from man's perspective, How can I be accountable for something that I have no option out of? How does that seem fair? Well, it's important for us to to briefly touch on this idea of federalism or a federal head. Romans chapter 5, if you're writing it down, and 1 Corinthians 15 are important passages for us to see this idea where Adam is our federal head, meaning he represents the human race, and Christ also is a federal head for for humanity. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we like this idea of headship when it comes to salvation. We like the idea that Jesus is our representative and that his goodness is given to us. But then when we look back in Genesis in the garden, we say, I don't like that I get Adam's badness. I, I don't like that that's given to me. And one might continue in their objection to say, hey, I didn't choose Adam. Sounds like a good American response, right? <laughs> I didn't choose him. He's not my representative, right? I didn't pick him. But I think 
an appropriate response to that is to consider who did the choosing. Who chose Adam to represent us? God did. God chose Adam to represent the human race, and it was his choice, the choice of the almighty, all-wise, all-knowing God, and he chose best. He chose rightly to represent the human race. And as we see God's holiness and we see our sinfulness apart from Christ, we recognize, I would have made the same choice. I'm, I'm that sinner. I love, um, one writer put it very poetically, he said, the first representative was tested in the Garden of Eden and lost. The last representative was tested in the Garden of Gethsemane and won. The first representative walked to a tree to commit the ultimate act of rebellion, and the last walked to hang on a tree as the ultimate act of redeeming love. Ugliness is what our sin is. It's ugly. It's wretched. It's wicked. And this is the ugliness of our sin, is that we try to put man in God's place. But the beauty of God's grace, get this, is that man, their place is taken by God. God takes man's place to reverse the curse, to pay for our sin, to make us right, to bring us into right relationship with God. So how can God judge those who are unable? It's God's choice. And it's important for us to recognize that God is sovereign. And he's provided a representative of righteousness. In our conclusion, I thought it would be important for us to reflect briefly on some application. What does this look like in our shoes, in our hearts, in our minds, in our everyday life? Well, I think first we want to think vertically. We want to think in our relationship with God. How ought we to respond? We ought to respond to this truth of God's word with humility. We need to see the pervasiveness of our personal sinfulness. We need to know and believe these truths of Scripture about who you and I are apart from Christ. We need to see that we are helpless, that we are hopeless because of our sin before a holy and just God. This is a personal truth about you. We are so wicked and God is so gracious. Think of John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved, what, a a wretch, a wretch like me. The right response to this biblical view of the depravity and sinfulness of man is humility. Humility before a holy and righteous God. We also ought to respond in amazement. Seeing the astonishing deliverance accomplished by Christ for you and for me should blow our minds. Because we had no hope apart from him. Every new desire to please God, every overflow of praise to God, every good deed for his glory ought to shake us at our core to experience God's powerful and transforming grace in our lives. We ought to be amazed at what he has done for us. But how about horizontally? What comes out of our our right response to God in humility and amazement? I love um, this quote from John Piper. He says, patience. Patience is the reflex of humble amazement that we ourselves are saved. I don't know about you, but I realized how impatient I was this week. And realizing that the problem is not out there, it's in here. I don't know my sinfulness and God's amazing grace. To the point where I look at other people and I say, 
man, I know, I know the trap of sin, the ugliness of sin. We ought to be patient when we know that we were dead and we couldn't make ourselves alive. It ought to radically change the way you share the gospel with other people. Being patient with them. Being prayerful for them. You will call people to see and believe in Jesus with tenderness and patience when you know how you have been saved. A divine miracle. It's nothing they can do. It's nothing you can do. But God can. Lastly, in our relationships with others, we ought to see a change, a boldness in the way that we talk to other peoples. If we truly believe that God saves sinners, we would be tirelessly bold in the proclamation of the gospel. Mark chapter 10, Jesus was, uh, just finished his conversation talking to the rich young ruler. And Jesus said how difficult it would be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples, um, understanding what he meant, responded by saying, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? To which Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Think this morning of the hardest, hard-hearted sinner that you know. God can save that person. Because it's not up to the person, it's not up to you, it's up to him. Will you be faithful and bold in sharing the truth, knowing that you get to be a part of of seeing God's work of salvation done in the lives of others. When we believe this, no matter how weak or helpless we feel, we will bear witness with boldness for Christ. Lastly, I wanted to mention, since we're touching on the first uh, part of of this doctrines of grace, there's really five parts that we're going to go through. And what's important for us to understand is that there's really one point here. Think of it like baking a cake. If you left the eggs out or the butter out, you wouldn't get a very good cake at the end. You're not going to savor the sweetness, especially if you leave out the sugar. J.I. Packer's quote is helpful in this sense. He says, The very act of setting out Calvinistic soteriology in the form of five distinct points, a number due, as we saw, merely uh, to the fact that there were five Arminian points for the sign out of door to answer, tends to obscure the organic character of Calvinistic thought on this subject. For the five points, though separately stated, are really inseparable. They hang together. You cannot reject one without rejecting them all, at least in the sense in which Synod meant for them to be taken. For to Calvinism, there is really only one point to be made about the field of soteriology. The point that God saves sinners. God saves sinners. And the force of this confession may not be weakened by dividing the achievement of salvation between God and man and making the decisive part of man's own, or by soft-pedaling sinner's inability so as to allow him to share in the praise of salvation with his Savior. This is the one point of Calvinistic soteriology, which the five points are concerned to establish, namely that sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but that salvation first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and future, is of the Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please be sure to join us next week. We're going to continue in our study through these doctrines of grace. And next week we'll be in part four, talking about the unconditional election of God according to Scripture. I hope you this morning have gained a greater grasp of God's sovereign grace towards us sinners.
If you have any questions or want additional resources, uh, feel free to email us, and we'd love to get those questions as we're planning an um, intermission session for a Q&A. So after election, uh, we've been through it four weeks now, so we want to take some time to answer some of those questions before we finish out. And with that, you are dismissed.